0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Theory. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Basu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of the STEM series of High Theory Podcast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Alex Hanna. Dr. Alex Hanna is a Director of Research at the Distributive AI Research Institute, or DARE. She is a sociologist by training. Her work centers on the data used in new computational technologies and the ways in which these data exacerbate racial, gender, and class inequality. She also works in the area of social movements, focusing on the dynamics of anti-racist campus process in the US and Canada, which is how I got to know Dr. Hanna. Dr. Hanna received her PhD in sociology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2016, where she has recently also started a scholarship fund to support queer students of color in sociology. I believe the fund is accepting donations in case any listeners are interested in contributing. Um, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Since then, she's, she has spent time at the University of Toronto as an assistant professor um, before spending four years at Google, and especially on the ethical AI team, where she was a senior researcher. Now she works at the of AI Research Institute, where she's director of research. As, um, she also serves as co-chair of the Sociologist for Trans Justice, as a senior fellow at the Center for Applied Transgender Studies, and sits on the advisory board for the Human Rights Data Analysis Group, and the Scholars Council for the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. Um, so we're very pleased and honored to have Dr. Hanna on the podcast today. And yeah, welcome, Dr. Hanna. Yeah, thank you, Nathan.
1: Yeah.
0: So the concept for today's episode is ethical AI which is both kind of a a hot topic that a lot of people are interested in and excited about and something that many people have critiqued and tried to rework and define in more kind of liberatory ways. So Dr. Hanna, what is ethical AI?
1: Gosh, what a question. Uh, (laughs) uh, So ethical AI, I think, could be considered a few different things. I think one idea behind it is it is an attempt to... Ensure that AI that is created is done so, quote unquote, ethically, depending on what you mean by that, that that is done in a way that is not harmful, is not um, in a way that exacerbates current harms and actually may improve lives of people in the world. That's kind of what it is on a conceptual level. On a practical level, I think ethical AI has to be broken down a little bit. And even starting from the position of saying, well, is building AI itself ever ethical? Um, Thinking about the conditions of formation of AI as a technology, AI has a longer history than it has in its current moment. Artificial intelligence started much longer than the past 10 years or so when the research has exploded and has this history in the 40s and 50s thinking about having militaristic and Cold War roots, of having computers do things without human intervention. It has this quite long history that's tied up with militarism, with defense, with war making, and has seen a resurgence within the past 20 years given to some cutting-edge techniques in uh, a field that's known as deep learning, um, and the resurgence in research in what's called uh, neural networks. And so, much of this has been proliferating at a really fast rate. And so, I think at this point, we've seen these these things where AI tools have been have been deployed and have done things which are just patently racist, sexist, homo and transphobic, biased against low income people and communities of color. And so, you know, take your pick of which which of these are like black men getting misidentified by facial recognition algorithms in Detroit, or Google's image tagging, labeling black people as gorillas, or Amazon's web tool that screened out resumes by women systematically. I mean, these are sort of, you can pick your, your example. It seems like there's dozens of them to go by now. And so, so much of these things have have become so common this kind of field of ethical ai has has come into view and has focused on the models involved in ai but also the data that's used in it and also how we govern those things and have meaningful inf- interventions into those technologies
0: awesome thank you could you talk a little bit about the process behind ai that leads to such kind of horrific outcomes Why is it that Black people are misidentified? Why do these biases come to be?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of different reasons why these biases come into view. I mean, one of them, and we can think about them both on the technical level, but also on a social level. On a technical level, a lot of these biases come into view, not with any kind of intention of the programmers or anybody at these companies, although the people that do work at these companies tend to be pretty homogeneous tend to be whiter Asian men in the U S and typically people of kind of middle to upper class means. But the sort of technical reason is that these algorithms learn um, because they take information that is gathered typically from the web. Um, There's kind of some minimal correction on them, but then they're used to train um, these different models. So in the traditional system, where a programmer hardcodes some logic that's kind of if then else. Um, what happens is that there's kind of a set of a data, and there's an inference that's made based on those prior examples, and then the software makes some kind of inference based on that data that is, is seen. And so, that's sort of the technical reason. And since since data on the web, if any of you spent any time on the web places like Reddit or YouTube comments or Twitter you know that people on the internet are racist and sexist and homophobic and transphobic. And that exacerbates those types of biases. Now we can also talk about the kind of social dimensions of why these things persist about the kind of composition of teams within companies about who kind of has the power to control AI how big labs are funded, where they get funding, and what gets prioritized in that view. In that sense, when we talk about AI, stepping out of the technical aspect and thinking more about the institutional aspect, the companies that hawk AI tend to be either large information technology companies like Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and whatnot, uh, or they're AI centric startups that are just getting huge amounts of venture capital. Um, and, and typically have, um, founders that are, you know, mostly from these companies or these, these kinds of elite institutions. And then the money also goes back into huge universities that, that do training places like Stanford, Carnegie Mellon, um, Princeton, uh, NYU. Um, and they tend to, um, are be the ones that kind of hire, um, into these companies or get that startup money. And so, you know, when we talk about AI, we don't just talk about this kind of technical component and why it gets biased, but it's also because there's just the ways in which the personnel and community ecosystem that plays into those biases as well.
0: I've also seen some criticism lately that a lot of the concepts that we sort of ascribe to AI, Um, for example, calling it ethical AI as if a computer can be ethical in itself, or even the term AI as in as if the computer has quote-unquote intelligence, those things are unhelpful because they ascribe human qualities onto machines. Um, can I ask for your thoughts on that? Should we even be calling it AI?
1: Yeah, this is a really great point. And I actually, I agree with a few different people who have said that we shouldn't be calling it AI. Um, so for instance, Emily Tucker, who is the director of the the Center Georgetown for Privacy and Law. I didn't get that exactly right, but she's she wrote a great article that was Talking about how we shouldn't be calling things AI, mostly because we want some specificity on what these systems are. So, you know, calling it even by the model name, like logistic regression, this really goes back to its technical terms and and does not anthropomorphize this kind of technology, this kind of, kind of intelligence. And calling it that also has a social function where... My boss at Dare and my, my old boss at Google, Meg Mitchell, wrote an op-ed in, in the Washington Post that kind of made this, this, this claim. You know, calling things AI or calling things sentient, it has this real kind of political economic effect where only these large companies can be thought of as developing AI or these specialty organizations. And it's like they're sort of achieving some kind of major feat when they're doing so. But these techniques are not sentient, they're not intelligent, they are some artificial or synthetic being. They are these complicated pattern matchers that you know have huge amounts of data connected to them. And these models are getting larger and larger. So for instance, large language models are one mode or one type of these models, and people have been training these models to be larger and larger, and they do, and we sort of measure that with by saying how many parameters they have, and so now we're at getting hundreds of billions of parameters in these models that take um, months and months to train. But at its root, they're doing things which are kind of built out of you know these these smaller building blocks, which would be hard to call intelligent. People who have really bought into this are kind of replacing and think that. You know, if you, you built something large enough, you can call it the brain or you can call it something that is sentient.
0: Awesome. And I think I read the article by Emily Tucker yesterday as artifice and intelligence, maybe is the one you're thinking about.
1: Yes, that's the one.
0: Yeah. And that last point, yeah, it's kind of unsettling how these large corporations and um, kind of very intent on this process of humanization of computers, but at the same time, what the technology is actually doing is like dehumanizing actual living people. Yeah, Absolutely. Could you talk a little bit about where you think the future of AI is going? Do you see, for example, a lot of politicians are always bemoaning how AI will replace human jobs, et cetera. Um, what will the future look like with AI?
1: Oh gosh. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think the future, the future of AI is going to, you know, like one, one, there's kind of different futures that we could imagine for it. Right. I mean, one future that we could imagine for AI is we're kind of on the same course as we're going where there's companies that are training larger and larger models and trying to apply them to different kinds of domains. And, you know, we're already just kind of seeing this in areas like hiring or healthcare, and there's just so much money in the field. And I mean, we're definitely kind of in a period of AI hype. And I think at one point there's going to be a burst in the bubble when these things that are overpromised really don't come to fruition But I think at the same time, these models are just going to kind of get bigger and bigger and there's going to be investment in them. And I don't know what what the inflection point is. Or we could try to find a different way (laughs) for AI and thinking about what it would mean to step back and think about what if, you know, do we actually need AI for this thing? I mean, it's one of the things we're trying to do at DARE is to step back and say, well, is AI the solution for this? And for most of the questions, we think it probably isn't. And so we do that with just from starting with people in communities that have focused and interface with AI technologies. So for instance, you know, to the people we have as fellows, Adrian Williams and Mila Maselli are focusing on thinking through um, the interface of what gets called AI, what, what is at its root, some kind of labor exploitation Adrian used to be an Amazon delivery driver and worked in a charter school as a teacher. That was a really data-driven charter school. Mila has done um, extensive interview and ethnographic work with data annotators, uh, typically in the global south or in refugee contexts. And so, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of what's happening that they that they see is that you still need a lot of humans, and those humans either get managed by AI technology or they're producing. This excessive amounts of data for AI to even function correctly. So, I think trying to find out what is existing there, what exists in that space, I mean, it's, I think this is a pretty precarious market situation, but there's, you know, we're sitting on a kind of an AI hype bubble. So, you know, I think there's a way we can step, step away from that and hopefully before the bubble bursts and find out alternatives to really manage what the sort of techno social future looks like. I think it's a good
0: time to ask the question, how do we use ethical AI? Um, and perhaps by we we can how do we as a not an AI engineer, um, how can I use ethical AI?
1: <laughs> as a normal person, one thing is you know you can do is sort of step back and I, I would say even before getting to this idea of AI, is to think about the different kinds of technologies that you are in interfacing with, especially on the web, especially kinds of consumer applications and thinking about, well, where's my data going? Because one thing that we know is that AI doesn't work with any kind of data. There's huge amounts of data mining that go on. And so thinking about where it goes and asking questions about that. And I would also say, secondly, any kinds of claims about AI, especially by people who are at the heads of these huge corporations. I mean, I think it's worth taking a pretty critical eye to all of them. Um, You know, every time a Mark Zuckerberg or a Sundar Pichai sits in front of Congress and says, we managed that with AI, it's worth stepping back and sort of replacing it with maybe a simpler kind of analogy. As a programmer, you could say, replace AI with complicated (laughs) if-then-else statement or... um, Fancy recipe, <laughs> and that will at least take the shine off it for you in, in trying to understand this stuff.
0: On one hand, it's correct to say this is a computer, not a something with consciousness. but On the other hand, I feel like lots of people are buying into this right now because of the hype around these large language models like DALI 2 and GPT 3. Can you tell us if the hype has any value in itself? The sentience that's being imitated by these language models, are they useful for humans in any sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, the short answer is no. <laughs> the, the kind of longer answer is, you know, and is, is a little more complicated than that. I think, you know, the, the, the engineer who claimed the sentience of the Lambda model, his name is Blake Lemon. I actually like Blake. I used to work with him on, on, on and off at Google. But I definitely think his his claims about the sentience were a bit more overblown. And I read all the elements that, the kind of experiments that he was running and it's going to look like this thing is sentient because that that's what this thing has learned this is and this is what is and even this kind of metaphor of learning has this implication that this thing is a, a child or, or or a learner of some sort but this is what it has been trained to mimic the second part of your question was you know is it kind of useful for us and it's kind of interesting because i don't really Know how useful these things are on the on the day to day. Google is obviously interested in this kind of thing because a large something like a large language model is useful for search um, and search technology. So, for instance, if you have millions of people a day typing something into a search box and you have to sort of make sense of these search results, then it might be helpful to sort of rewrite that internally, and for that to look closer to what you have stored in your your index. And so for search technology and an information retrieval technology, it's actually quite useful for that. And maybe that gets useful for maybe a consumer on on another end of saying, retrieving something that you want. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's mostly just gonna help Google kind of secure their market a bit more strongly. I'm not quite sure there's anything that's necessarily that useful for kind of large language models or things of that nature that aren't just going to have huge other types of externalities, like the amount of carbon it takes to train one of these huge things, or something of that nature. There may be some kind of uses that might be sort of helpful for machine translation for low-resource languages. But at the same time, that tends to be um, an afterthought for these things instead of kind of the main show. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty skeptical, uh, skeptical of them.
0: Yeah, it seems like the two major uses I've seen are the specific needs that these giant corporations have, search, content moderation, these kinds of things. And on the other hand, like, literal scam artists who kind of use the language models to um, boost real people. And for example, nowadays, there's lots of SEO oriented content farms, I guess, online. Um, so whenever I type of question, like, how do I clean my water bottle or, or anything, really, I always have to sift through a few that are randomly generated nonsense, I guess. Mm, yeah. Okay, I guess it might be a good time to turn to the last daunting and unanswerable question of how will ethical AI save the world
1: yeah well, I mean <laughs> it won't <laughs> I think we need to disentangle what we mean by ethical in the question and also AI and I think we've problematized AI just enough but we should also sort of problematize ethical right because I think you know a lot of the kind of critics of ethical AI have say had said, you know, let's not talk about ethics. Um, Let's talk about things like power and let's talk about ways in which, you know, technology redistributes power. You know, I don't think ethical AI is going to save the world in any regard, but we could also know that we could also start thinking and reframe the question of saying, how can we use technology more generally as a way of kind of enabling other types of power redistribution and what are those projects and what do they enable? And so I don't think anything called ethical AI is going to save the world, um, but there is a role for um, kind of using that question to kind of question who controls what and who gets what. And from that, I think we have more um, kind of more plausible answers for how we get free how we attain liberation, how do these do these things which are much more applicable and much more real than you know, this kind of nebulous thing that we call AI.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. hanna It was a pleasure and joy to talk to you. Yeah, thank you, Nathan. I really enjoyed it.
1: And thank you for listening to High
0: Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage our social media presence, Julia Irian Martins edits our transcripts, and Owen Quinn composes our theme music. The High Theory STEM series is orchestrated, recorded, and edited by Julia Irian Martins, Nathan Kim, Shoranuk Bosu, and Kim Adams.
1: You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.